Welcome to the 49th reading of John Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion, translated by Henry Beveridge. We are continuing this reading in Book 4, Chapter 15, Section 12. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more, at great discounts are on the web at www.swrb.com. Also, please consider, pray, and act upon the important truths found in the following quotation by Charles Spurgeon. As the Apostle says to Timothy, So also he says to everyone, Give yourself to reading. He who will not use the thoughts of other men's brains proves he has no brains of his own. You need to read. Renounce as much as you will all light literature, but study as much as possible sound theological works, especially the Puritanic writers and expositions of the Bible. The best way for you to spend your leisure is to be either reading or praying. And now to SWRB's reading of Institutes of the Christian Religion by John Calvin, which we hope you will find to be a great blessing and which we pray draws you nearer to the Lord Jesus Christ, for he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man cometh unto the Father but by him. John 14, 6. Section 12. Here we say nothing more than the Apostle Paul expounds most clearly in the 6th and 7th chapters of the Epistle to the Romans. He had discoursed of free justification, but as some wicked men thence inferred that they were to live as they listed, because their acceptance with God was not procured by the merit of works, he adds that all who are clothed with the righteousness of Christ are at the same time regenerated by the Spirit, and that we have an earnest of this regeneration in baptism. Hence he exhorts believers not to allow sin to reign in their members. And because he knew that there is always some infirmity in believers, lest they should be cast down on this account, he adds for their consolation that they are not under the law. Again, as there may seem a danger that Christians might grow presumptuous because they were not under the yoke of the law, he shows what the nature of the abrogation is, and at the same time what the use of the law is. This question he had already postponed a second time. The substance is that we are freed from the rigor of the law in order that we may adhere to Christ, and that the office of the law is to convince us of our depravity and make us confess our impotence and wretchedness. Moreover, as this malignity of nature is not so easily apparent in a profane man who, without fear of God, indulges his passions, he gives an example in the regenerate man, in other words, in himself. He therefore says that he had a constant struggle with the remains of his flesh, and was kept in miserable bondage so as to be unable to devote himself entirely to the obedience of the divine law. Hence he is forced to groan and exclaim, quote, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Unquote. Romans 7, verse 24. But if the children of God are kept captive in prison as long as they live, they must necessarily feel very anxious at the thought of their danger, unless their fears are allayed. For this single purpose, then, he subjoins the consolation that there is, quote, now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, unquote, Romans 8, verse 1. Hence he teaches that those whom the Lord has once admitted into favor and engrafted into communion with Christ and received into the fellowship of the church by baptism are free from guilt and condemnation while they persevere in the faith of Christ, though they may be beset by sin and thus bear sin about with them. If this is the simple and genuine interpretation of Paul's meaning, we cannot think that there is anything strange in the doctrine which he here delivers. Section 13. Baptism serves as our confession before men, inasmuch as it is a mark by which we openly declare that we wish to be ranked among the people of God, by which we testify that we concur with all Christians in the worship of one God and in one religion, by which, in short, we publicly assert our faith so that not only do our hearts breathe, but our tongues also and all the members of our body in every way they can proclaim the praise of God. And this way, as is meet, everything we have is made subservient to the glory of God, which ought everywhere to be displayed, and others are stimulated by our example to the same course. To this Paul referred when he asked the Corinthians whether or not they had been baptized in the name of Christ. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 13, intimating, that by the very circumstance of having been baptized in his name, they had devoted themselves to him, had sworn and bound themselves in allegiance to him before men, so that they could no longer confess any other than Christ alone unless they would abjure the confession which they had made in baptism. Section 14. Now that the end to which the Lord had regard an institution of baptism has been explained, it is easy to judge in what way we ought to use and receive it. For inasmuch as it is appointed to elevate, nourish, and confirm our faith, 
we are to receive it as from the hand of its author, being firmly persuaded that it is himself who speaks to us by means of the sign, that it is himself who washes and purifies us and defaces the remembrance of our faults, that it is himself who makes us the partakers of his death, destroys the kingdom of Satan, subdues the power of concupiscence, nay, makes us one with himself, that being clothed with him, we may be accounted the children of God. These things, I say, we ought to feel as truly and certainly in our mind as we see our body washed, immersed, and surrounded with water. For this analogy, our similitude furnishes the surest rule in the sacraments, viz., that in corporeal things we are to see spiritual, just as if we were actually exhibited to our eye, since the Lord has been pleased to represent them by such figures. Not that such graces are included and bound in the sacrament so as to be conferred by its efficacy but only that by this badge the Lord declares to us that he is pleased to bestow all these things upon us. Nor does he merely feed our eyes with fair show. He leads us to the actual object and effectually performs what he figures. Section 15 We have a proof of this in Cornelius the Centurion, who, after he had been previously endued with the graces of the Holy Spirit, was baptized for the remission of sins, not seeking a fuller forgiveness from baptism, but a sure exercise of faith nay, an argument for assurance from a pledge. It will perhaps be objected, why did Ananias say to Paul that he washed away his sins by baptism? Acts 22, verse 16, if sins are not washed away by the power of baptism. I answer, we are said to receive, procure, and obtain whatever according to the perception of our faith is exhibited to us by the Lord, whether he then attests it for the first time or gives additional confirmation to what he had previously attested. All then that Ananias meant to say was, Be baptized, Paul, that you may be assured that your sins are forgiven you. In baptism the Lord promises forgiveness of sins. Receive it, and be secure. I have no intention, however, to detract from the power of baptism. I would only add to the sign the substance and reality, inasmuch as God works by external means. But from this sacrament, as from all others, we gain nothing, unless insofar as we receive in faith. If faith is wanting, it will be an evidence of our ingratitude by which we are proved guilty before God for not believing the promise there given. Insofar as it is a sign of our confession, we ought thereby to testify that we confide in the mercy of God and are pure through the forgiveness of sins which Christ Jesus has procured for us, that we have entered into the church of God, that with one consent of faith and love we may live in concord with all believers. This last was Paul's meaning when he said that, quote, By one spirit are we all baptized into one body, unquote. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13. Section 16. Moreover, if we have rightly determined that a sacrament is not to be estimated by the hand of him by whom it is administered, but is to be received as from the hand of God himself, from whom it undoubtedly proceeded, we may hence infer that its dignity neither gains nor loses by the administrator. And, just as among men, when a letter has been sent, if the hand and seal is recognized, it is not of the least consequence who or what the messenger was. So it ought to be sufficient for us to recognize the hand and seal of our Lord in his sacraments, let the administrator be who he may. This confutes the error of the Donatists, who measured the efficacy and worth of the sacrament by the dignity of the minister. Such in the present day are our catabaptists, to deny that we are duly baptized because we were baptized in the papacy by wicked men and idolaters, hence they furiously insist on anabaptism. Against these absurdities we shall be sufficiently fortified if we reflect that by baptism we were initiated not into the name of any man, but into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and therefore that baptism is not of man, but of God, by whomsoever it may have been administered. Yet that those who baptized us were most ignorant of God and all piety, or were despisers, still they did not baptize us into a fellowship with their ignorance or sacrilege, but into the faith of Jesus Christ, because the name which they invoked was not their own but God's, nor did they baptize into any other name. But if baptism was of God, it certainly included in it the promise of forgiveness of sin, mortification of the flesh, quickening of the spirit, and communion with Christ. Thus it did not harm the Jews that they were circumcised by impure and apostate priests. It did not nullify the symbol so as to make it necessary to repeat it. It was enough to return it to its genuine origin. 
The objection that baptism ought to be celebrated in the assembly of the godly does not prove that it loses its whole efficacy because it is partly defective. When we show what ought to be done to keep baptism pure and free from every taint, we do not abolish the institution of God, though idolaters may corrupt it. Circumcision was anciently vitiated by many superstitions, and yet ceased not to be regarded as a symbol of grace. Nor did Josiah and Hezekiah, when they assembled out of all Israel, those who had revolted from God, call them to be circumcised anew. Section 17. Then again, when they ask us what faith for several years followed our baptism, that they may thereby prove that our baptism was in vain, since it is not sanctified unless the word of the promise is received with faith, our answer is that being blind and unbelieving, we for a long time did not hold the promise which was given us in baptism but that still the promise, as it was of God, always remained fixed and firm and true. Although all men should be false and perfidious, yet God ceases not to be true. Romans 3, verses 3 and 4. Though all were lost, Christ remained safe. We acknowledge, therefore, that at that time baptism profited us nothing, since in us the offered promise without which baptism is nothing lay neglected. Now, when by the grace of God we begin to repent, we accuse our blindness and hardness of heart in having been so long ungrateful for his great goodness. But we do not believe that the promise itself has vanished. We rather reflect thus. God in baptism promises the remission of sins and will undoubtedly perform what he has promised to all believers. That promise was offered to us in baptism. Let us therefore embrace it in faith. In regard to us, indeed, it was long buried on account of unbelief. Now, therefore, let us with faith receive it. Wherefore, when the Lord invites the Jewish people to repentance, he gives no injunction concerning another circumcision, though, as we have said, they were circumcised by a wicked and sacrilegious hand, and had long lived in the same impiety. All he urges is conversion of heart. For how much soever the covenant might have been violated by them, the symbol of the covenant always remained, according to the appointment of the Lord, firm and inviolable. Solely, therefore, on the condition of repentance, were they restored to the covenant which God had once made with them in circumcision, though this which they had received at the hand of a covenant-breaking priest, they had themselves as much as in them lay polluted and extinguished. Section 18. But they seem to think the weapon which they brandish irresistible when they allege that Paul rebaptized those who had been baptized with the baptism of John, Acts 19, verses 3 and 5. For if by our confession the baptism of John was the same as ours, then in like manner as those who had been improperly trained when they learned the true faith were rebaptized into it, ought that baptism which was without true doctrine to be accounted as nothing, and hence we ought to be baptized anew into the true religion with which we are now for the first time imbued. It seems to some that it was a foolish imitator of John who, by a former baptism, had initiated them into vain superstition. This, it is thought, may be conjectured from the fact that they acknowledge their entire ignorance of the Holy Spirit, an ignorance in which John never would have left his disciples. But it is not probable that the Jews, even though they had not been baptized at all, would have been destitute of all knowledge of the Spirit, who is celebrated in so many passages of Scripture. Their answer, therefore, that they knew not whether there was a Spirit, must be understood as if they had said that they had not yet heard whether or not the gifts of the Spirit, as to which Paul questioned them, were given to the disciples of Christ. I grant that John's was a true baptism, and one and the same with the baptism of Christ. But I deny that they were rebaptized. What then is meant by the words, quote, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, unquote. Some interpret that they were only instructed in sound doctrine by Paul, but I would rather interpret more simply that the baptism of the Holy Spirit, in other words, the visible gifts of the Holy Spirit, were given by the laying on of hands. These are sometimes designated under the name of baptism. Thus, on the day of Pentecost, the apostles are said to have remembered the words of the Lord concerning the baptism of the Spirit and of fire. And Peter relates that the words occurred to him when he saw these gifts poured out on Cornelius and his family and kindred. There is nothing repugnant to this interpretation, and its being afterwards added, quote, When Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Ghost came on them, unquote. Acts 19, verse 6. For Luke does not narrate two different things, but follows the form of narrative common to the Hebrews, who first give the substance and then explain more fully. This anyone may perceive from the mere context. For he says, 
Both, when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul laid his hands upon them, the Holy Ghost came on them. Unquote. And this last sentence has described what the nature of the baptism was. But if ignorance vitiates a former and requires to be corrected by a second baptism, the apostles should first of all have been rebaptized, since for more than three full years after their baptism they had scarcely received any slender portion of pure doctrine. Then, so numerous being the acts of ignorance which by the mercy of God are daily corrected in us, what rivers would suffice for so many repeated baptisms? Section 19. The Force dignity, utility, and end of the sacrament must now, if I mistake not, be sufficiently clear. In regard to the external symbol, I wish the genuine institution of Christ had been maintained as fit to repress the audacity of men, as if to be baptized with water according to the precept of Christ had been a contemptible thing, a benediction, or rather incantation, was devised to pollute the true consecration of water. There was afterwards added the taper and chrism, while exorcism was thought to open the door for baptism, though I am not unaware how ancient the origin of this adventitious farrago is, still it is lawful for me and all the godly to reject whatever men have presumed to add to the institution of Christ. When Satan saw that by the foolish credulity of the world his impostures were received almost without objection at the commencement of the gospel, he proceeded to grosser mockery. Hence, spittle and other follies to the open disgrace of baptism were introduced with unbridled license. From our experience of them, let us learn that there is nothing holier or better or safer than to be contented with the authority of Christ alone. How much better, therefore, is it to lay aside all theatrical pomp, which dazzles the eyes of the simple and dulls our minds, and when any one is to be baptized to bring him forward and present him to God, the whole church looking on as witnesses and praying over him, to recite the confession of faith in which the catechumen has been instructed, explain the promises which are given in baptism, then baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and conclude with prayer and thanksgiving. In this way, nothing which is appropriate would be omitted, and the one ceremony which proceeded from its divine author would shine forth most brightly, not being buried or polluted by extraneous observances, whether the person baptized is to be wholly immersed, and that whether once or thrice or whether he is only to be sprinkled with water is not of the least consequence. Churches should be at liberty to adopt either according to the diversity of climates, although it is evident that the term baptize means to immerse, and that this was the form used by the primitive church. Section 20. It is here also pertinent to observe that it is improper for private individuals to take upon themselves the administration of baptism, for it, as well as the dispensation of the supper, is part of the ministerial office. For Christ did not give command to any men or women whatever to baptize, but to those whom he had appointed apostles. And when, in the administration of the supper, he ordered his disciples to do what they had seen him do, he having done the part of a legitimate dispenser, he doubtless meant that in this they should imitate his example. The practice which has been in use for many ages, and even almost from the very commencement of the church, for legs to baptize in danger of death when a minister could not be present in time, cannot, it appears to me, be defended on sufficient grounds. Even the early Christians who observed or tolerated this practice were not clear whether it were rightly done. This doubt is expressed by Augustine when he says, quote, Although a lake have given baptism when compelled by necessity, I know not whether anyone can piously say that it ought to be repeated. For if it is done without any necessity compelling it, it is usurpation of another's office. But if necessity urges, it is either no fault or a venial one, unquote. With regard to women, it was decreed without exception in the Council of Carthage that they were not to presume to baptize at all. But there is a danger that he who is sick may be deprived of the gift of regeneration if he decease without baptism. By no means, our children, before they are born, God declares that he adopts for his own when he promises that he will be a God to us and to our seed after us. In this promise, their salvation is included. None will dare to offer such an insult to God as to deny that he is able to give effect to his promise. How much evil has been caused by the dogma, ill expounded, that baptism is necessary to salvation, few perceive, and therefore think caution the less necessary. For when the opinion prevails that all our laws should happen not to be dipped in water, our condition becomes worse than that of God's ancient people, as if his grace were more restrained than under the law. 
In that case, Christ will be thought to have come not to fulfill, but to abolish the promises, since the promise, which was then effectual in itself to confer salvation before the eighth day, would not now be effectual without the help of the sign. Section 21. What the custom was before Augustine's day is gathered first from Tertullian. He says that a woman is not permitted to speak in the church, nor yet to teach, or baptize, or offer, that she may not claim to herself any office of the man, not to say of the priest. Of the same thing we have a sufficient witness in Epiphanius, when he upbraids Marcion with giving permission to women to baptize. I am not unaware of the answer given by those who take an opposite view, viz., that common use is very different from an extraordinary remedy used under the pressure of extreme necessity. But since he declares it mockery to allow women to baptize and makes no exception, it is sufficiently plain that the corruption is condemned as inexcusable on any pretext. In his third book, also, when he says that it was not even permitted to the Holy Mother of Christ, he makes no reservation. Section 22. The example of Zephyrah in Exodus 4, verse 25, is irrelevantly quoted. Because the angel of God was appeased after she took a stone and circumcised her son, it is erroneously inferred that her act was approved by God. Were it so, we must say that God was pleased with the worship which Gentiles brought from Assyria and set up in Samaria. But other valid reasons prove that what a foolish woman did is ignorantly drawn into a precedent. Were I to say that there was something special in the case, making it unfit for a precedent, and especially as we nowhere read that the command to circumcise was specially given to priests, the cases of baptism and circumcision are different, I should give a sufficient refutation, for the words of Christ are plain, quote, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them, unquote. Matthew 28, verse 19. Since he appointed the same persons to be preachers of the gospel and dispensers of baptism, and in the church, quote, no man taketh this honor unto himself, unquote, as the apostle declares, Hebrews 5, verse 4, quote, but he that is called of God, as was Aaron, unquote, anyone who baptizes without a lawful call, he serves another's office. Paul declares that whatever we attempt with a dubious conscience, even in the minutest matters, as in meat and drink, is sin. Romans 14, verse 23. Therefore, in baptism by women, the sin is the greater when it is plain that the rule delivered by Christ is violated, saying we know it to be unlawful to put asunder what God has joined. But all this I pass. Only I would have my readers to observe that the last thing intended by Zipporah was to perform a service to God. Seeing her son in danger, she frets and murmurs, and not, without indignation, throws down the foreskin on the ground, thus upbraiding her husband and taking offense at God. In short, it is plain that her whole procedure is dictated by passion. She complains both against her husband and against God, because she is forced to spill the blood of her son. We may add that however well she might have conducted herself in all other respects, yet her presumption is inexcusable in this, in circumcising her son while her husband is present, and that husband not a mere private individual, but Moses, the chief prophet of God, than whom no greater ever arose in Israel. This was no more allowable in her than it would be for women in the present day under the eye of a bishop. But this controversy will at once be disposed of when we maintain that children who happen to depart this life before an opportunity of immersing them in water are not excluded from the kingdom of heaven. Now it has been seen that unless we admit this position, great injury is done to the covenant of God, as if in itself it were weak, whereas its effect depends not either on baptism or on any accessories. The sacrament is afterwards added as a kind of seal, not to give efficacy to the promise, as if in itself invalid, but merely to confirm it to us. Hence it follows that the children of believers are not baptized, in order that though formerly aliens from the church, they may then for the first time become children of God, but rather are received into the church by a formal sign, because in virtue of the promise they previously belonged to the body of Christ. Hence, if in omitting the sign there is neither sloth, nor contempt, nor negligence, we are safe from all danger. By far the better course, therefore, is to pay such respect to the ordinance of God as not to seek the sacraments in any other quarter than where the Lord has deposited them. When we cannot receive them from the church, the grace of God is not so inseparably annexed to them that we cannot obtain it by faith according to his word. Chapter 16. Pedobaptism is accordance with the institution of Christ and the nature of the sign. There are 32 sections. Section 1. 
But since in this age certain frenzied spirits have raised and even now continue to raise great disturbance in the church on account of paedobaptism, I cannot avoid here, by way of appendix, adding something to restrain their fury. Should anyone think me more prolix than the subject is worth, let him reflect that any matter of the greatest moment, so much is due to the peace and purity of the church, that we should not fastidiously object to whatever may be conducive to both. I may add that I will study so to arrange this discussion that it will tend, in no small degree, still farther to illustrate the subject of baptism. The argument by which paedobaptism is assailed is no doubt specious, viz., that it is not founded on the institution of God, but was introduced merely by human presumption and depraved curiosity, and afterwards by a foolish facility rashly received in practice, whereas a sacrament has not a thread to hang upon if it is rest not on the sure foundation of the word of God. But what if, when the matter is properly attended to, it should be found that a calumny is falsely and unjustly brought against the holy ordinance of the Lord? First, then, let us inquire into its origin. Should it appear to have been devised merely by human rashness, let us abandon it, and regulate the true observance of baptism entirely by the will of the Lord. But should it be proved to be by no means destitute of his sure authority, let us beware of discarding the sacred institutions of God, and thereby insulting their author. Section 2. In the first place, then, it is a well-known doctrine, and one as to which all the pious are agreed, that the right consideration of signs does not lie merely in the outward ceremonies, but depends chiefly on the promise and the spiritual mysteries to typify which the ceremonies themselves are appointed. He, therefore, who would thoroughly understand the effect of baptism, its object and true character, must not stop short at the element and corporeal object but look forward to the divine promises which are therein offered to us, and rise to the internal secrets which are therein represented. He who understands these has reached the solid truth, and so to speak the whole substance of baptism, and will thence perceive the nature and use of outward sprinkling. On the other hand, he who passes them by in contempt, and keeps his thoughts entirely fixed on the visible ceremony, will neither understand the force, nor the proper nature of baptism, nor comprehend what is meant, or what end is gained by the use of water. This is confirmed by passages of Scripture too numerous and too clear to make it necessary here to discuss them more at length. It remains, therefore, to inquire into the nature and efficacy of baptism, as evinced by the promises therein given. Scripture shows, first, that it points to that cleansing from sin which we obtain by the blood of Christ, and, secondly, to the mortification of the flesh, which consists in participation in his death, by which believers are regenerated to newness of life, and thereby to the fellowship of Christ. To these general heads may be referred all that the Scriptures teach concerning baptism, with this addition, that it is also a symbol to testify our religion to men. Section 3. Now, since prior to the institution of baptism, the people of God had circumcision in its stead, let us see how far these two signs differ, and how far they resemble each other. In this way it will appear what analogy there is between them. When the Lord enjoins Abraham to observe circumcision, Genesis 17, verse 10, he premises that he would be a God unto them and to his seed, adding that in himself was a perfect sufficiency of all things, and that Abraham might reckon on his hand as a fountain of every blessing. These words include the promise of eternal life, as our Savior interprets when he employs it to prove the immortality and resurrection of believers. Quote, God, unquote, says he, quote, is not the God of the dead, but of the living, unquote. Matthew 22, verse 32. Hence, too, Paul, when showing to the Ephesians how great the destruction was from which the Lord had delivered them, saying that they had not been admitted to the covenant of circumcision, infers that at that time they were aliens from the covenant of promise without God and without hope. Ephesians 2, verse 12, all these being comprehended in the covenant. Now the first access to God, the first entrance to immortal life, is the remission of sins. Hence it follows that this corresponds to the promise of our cleansing in baptism. The Lord afterwards covenants with Abraham that he is to walk before him in sincerity and innocence of heart. This applies to mortification or regeneration. And lest any should doubt whether circumcision were the sign of mortification, Moses explains more clearly elsewhere when he exhorts the people of Israel to circumcise the foreskin of their heart, because the Lord had chosen them for his own people out of all nations of the earth. As the Lord, in choosing the posterity of Abraham for his people, commands them to be circumcised, so Moses declares that they are to be circumcised in heart, thus explaining what is typified by that carnal circumcision. 
Then, lest anyone should attempt this in his own strength, he shows that it is the work of divine grace. All this is so often inculcated by the prophets that there is no occasion here to collect the passages which everywhere occur. We have, therefore, a spiritual promise given to the fathers in circumcision, similar to that which is given to us in baptism, since it figured to them both the forgiveness of sins and the mortification of the flesh. Besides, as we have shown that Christ, in whom both of these reside, is the foundation of baptism, so must he also be the foundation of circumcision. For he is promised to Abraham, and in him all nations are blessed. To seal this grace, the sign of circumcision is added. Section 4 There is now no difficulty in seeing wherein the two signs agree, and wherein they differ. The promise in which we have shown that the power of the signs consists, is one in both, viz., the promise of the paternal favor of God, of forgiveness of sins, and eternal life. And the thing figured is one and the same, viz., regeneration. The foundation on which the completion of these things depends is one in both. Wherefore, there is no difference in the internal meaning from which the whole power and peculiar nature of the sacrament is to be estimated. The only difference which remains is in the external ceremony, which is the least part of it, the chief part consisting in the promise and the thing signified. Hence, we may conclude that everything applicable to circumcision applies also to baptism, accepting always the difference in the visible ceremony. To this analogy and comparison we are led by that rule of the Apostle in which he enjoins us to bring every interpretation of Scripture to the analogy of faith. Romans 12, verses 3 and 6. And certainly in this matter the truth may also be felt. For just as circumcision, which was a kind of badge to the Jews, assuring them that they were adopted as the people and family of God, was their first entrance into the church, while they in their turn professed their allegiance to God, so now we are initiated by baptism, so as to be enrolled among his people, and at the same time swear unto his name. Hence it is incontrovertible that baptism has been substituted for circumcision and performs the same office. Section 5 now, if we are to investigate whether or not baptism is justly given to infants, will we not say that the man trifles are rather as delirious who would stop short at the element of water and the external observance, and not allow his mind to rise to the spiritual mystery? If reason is listened to, it will undoubtedly appear that baptism is properly administered to infants as a thing due to them. The Lord did not anciently bestow circumcision upon them without making them partakers of all the things signified by circumcision. He would have deluded his people with mere imposture had he quieted them with fallacious symbols. The very idea is shocking. He distinctly declares that the circumcision of the infant will be instead of a seal of the promise of the covenant. But if the covenant remains firm and fixed, it is no less applicable to the children of Christians in the present day than to the children of the Jews under the Old Testament. Now, if they are partakers of the thing signified, how can they be denied the sign? If they obtain the reality, how can they be refused the figure? The external sign is so united in the sacrament with the word that it cannot be separated from it. But if they can be separated, to which of the two shall we attach the greater value? Surely when we see that the sign is subservient to the word, we shall say that it is subordinate and assign it to the inferior place. Since then the word of baptism is destined for infants, why should we deny them the sign which is an appendage of the word? This one reason could no other be furnished would be amply sufficient to refute all gainsayers. The objection that there was a fixed day for circumcision is a mere quibble. We admit that we are not now like the Jews tied down to certain days, but when the Lord declares that though he prescribes no day, yet he is pleased that infants shall be formally admitted to his covenant, what more do we ask? Section 6 Scripture gives us a still clearer knowledge of the truth. For it is most evident that the covenant which the Lord once made with Abraham is not less applicable to Christians now than it was anciently to the Jewish people, and therefore that word has no less reference to Christians than to Jews. Unless, indeed, we imagine that Christ, by his advent, diminished or curtailed the grace of the Father, an idea not free from execrable blasphemy. Wherefore, both the children of the Jews, because when made heirs of that covenant, they were separated from the heathen, were called a holy seed, and for the same reason the children of Christians, are those who have only one believing parent, are called holy, and by the testimony of the apostle, differ from the impure seed of idolaters. Then, since the Lord, immediately after the covenant was made with Abraham, ordered it to be sealed in infants by an outward sacrament, how can it be said that Christians are not to attest it in the present day, and seal it in their children? 
Let it not be objected that the only symbol by which the Lord ordered his covenant to be confirmed was that of circumcision, which was long ago abrogated. It is easy to answer that, in accordance with the form of the old dispensation, he appointed circumcision to confirm his covenant, but that it being abrogated, the same reason for confirmation still continues, a reason which we have in common with the Jews. Hence, it is always necessary carefully to consider what is common to both, and wherein they differed from us. The covenant is common, and the reason for confirming it is common. The mode of confirming it is so far different that they had circumcision, instead of which we now have baptism. Otherwise, if the testimony by which the Jews were assured of the salvation of their seed is taken from us, the consequence will be that, by the advent of Christ, the grace of God which was formerly given to the Jews is more obscure and less perfectly attested to us. If this cannot be said without extreme insult to Christ, by whom the infinite goodness of the Father has been more brightly and benignly than ever shed upon the earth and declared to men, it must be confessed that it cannot be more confined and less clearly manifested than under the obscure shadows of the law. Section 7 Hence our Lord Jesus Christ, to give an example from which the world might learn that he had come to enlarge, rather than to limit the grace of the Father, kindly takes the little children in his arms and rebukes his disciples for attempting to prevent them from coming. Matthew 19, verse 13 Because they were keeping those to whom the kingdom of heaven belonged away from him, through whom alone there is access to heaven. But it will be asked, What resemblance is there between baptism and our Savior embracing little children? He is not said to have baptized, but to have received, embraced, and blessed them. And therefore, if we would imitate his example, we must give infants the benefit of our prayers, not baptize them. But let us attend to the act of our Savior a little more carefully than these men do. For we must not lightly overlook the fact that our Savior, in ordering little children to be brought to him, as the reason, quote, of such is the kingdom of heaven, unquote. And he afterwards testifies his good will by act when he embraces them, and with prayer and benediction commends them to his Father. If it is right that children should be brought to Christ, why should they not be admitted to baptism, the symbol of our communion and fellowship with Christ? If the kingdom of heaven is theirs, why should they be denied the sign by which access, as it were, is open to the church, that being admitted into it, they may be enrolled among the heirs of the heavenly kingdom? How unjust were we to drive away those whom Christ invites to himself, to spoil those whom he adorns with his gifts, to exclude those whom he spontaneously admits. But if we insist on discussing the difference between our Savior's act and baptism, in how much higher esteem shall we hold baptism, by which we testify that infants are included in the divine covenant, than the taking up, embracing, laying hands on children, and praying over them, acts by which Christ, when present, declares both that they are his and are sanctified by him. By the other cavils by which the objectors endeavor to evade this passage, they only betray their ignorance. They quibble that, because our Savior says, quote, Suffer little children to come, unquote, they must have been several years old and fit to come. But they are called by the evangelists Greek words, Beta, Rho, Epsilon, Phi, Eta, Chi, Alpha, Iota, Pi, Alpha, Iota, Delta, Iota, Alpha, Rephe, Ki, Pedia, terms which denote infants still at their mother's breasts. The term, quote, come, unquote, is used simply for, quote, approach, unquote. See the quibbles to which men are obliged to have recourse when they have hardened themselves against the truth. There is nothing more solid in their allegation that the kingdom of heaven is not assigned to children, but to those like children, since the expression is, quote, of such, unquote, not, quote, of themselves, unquote. If this is admitted, what will be the reason which our Savior employs to show that they are not strangers to him from knowledge? When he orders that little children shall be allowed to come to him, nothing is plainer than that mere infancy is meant. Lest this should seem absurd, he adds, Quote, of such is the kingdom of heaven, unquote. But if infants must necessarily be comprehended, the expression, quote, of such, unquote, clearly shows that infants themselves and those like them are intended. Section 8. Everyone must now see that pedobaptism which receives such strong support from Scripture is by no means of human invention. Nor is there anything plausible in the objection that we nowhere read of even one infant having been baptized by the hands of the apostles, for although this is not expressly narrated by the evangelists, yet as they are not expressly excluded when mention is made of any baptized family, Acts 16, verses 15 and 32, watchman of sense will argue from this that they were not baptized. 
and such kinds of argument were good, it would be necessary in like manner to interdict women from the Lord's Supper, since we do not read that they were ever admitted to it in the days of the apostles. But here we are contented with the rule of faith, for when we reflect on the nature of the ordinance of the Lord's Supper, we easily judge who the persons are to whom the use of it is to be communicated. The same we observe in the case of baptism. For attending to the end for which it was instituted, we clearly perceive that it is not less applicable to children than to those of more advanced years, and that therefore they cannot be deprived of it without manifest fraud to the will of its divine author. The assertion which they disseminate among the common people that a long series of years elapsed after the resurrection of Christ, during which paedobaptism was unknown, is a shameful falsehood, since there is no writer, however ancient, who does not trace its origin to the days of the apostles. Section 9. It remains briefly to indicate what benefit redounds from the observance both to believers who bring their children to the church to be baptized and to the infants themselves to whom the sacred water is applied, that no one may despise the ordinance as useless or superfluous, though anyone who would think of ridiculing baptism under this pretense would also ridicule the divine ordinance of circumcision, for what can they adduce to impugn the one that they may not be retorted against the other? Thus the Lord punishes the arrogance of those who forthwith condemn whatever their carnal sins cannot comprehend. But God furnishes us with other weapons to repress their stupidity. His holy institution, from which we feel that our faith derives admirable consolation, deserves not to be called superfluous. For the divine symbol communicated to the child as with the impress of a seal confirms the promise given to the godly parent and declares that the Lord will be a God not to him only but to his seed not merely visiting him with his grace and goodness, but his posterity also to the thousandth generation. When the infinite goodness of God is thus displayed, it in the first place furnishes most ample materials for proclaiming his glory, and fills pious breasts with no ordinary joy, urging them more strongly to love their affectionate parent, when they see that on their account he extends his care to their posterity. I am not moved by the objection that the promise ought to be sufficient to confirm the salvation of our children. It has seemed otherwise to God, who, seeing our weakness, has herein been pleased to condescend to it, that those then who embrace the promise of mercy to their children consider it as their duty to offer them to the church, to be sealed with the symbol of mercy, and animate themselves to sure confidence on seeing with the bodily eye the covenant of the Lord engraven on the bodies of their children. On the other hand, children derive some benefit from their baptism when, being engrafted into the body of the church, they are made an object of greater interest to the other members. Then, when they have grown up, they are thereby strongly urged to an earnest desire of serving God, who has received them as sons by the formal symbol of adoption, before from knowledge they were able to recognize him as their father. And fine, we ought to stand greatly in awe of the denunciation that God will take vengeance on everyone who despises to impress the symbol of the covenant on his child. Genesis 17, verse 15, such contempt being a rejection and, as it were, abjuration of the offered grace. Section 10. Let us now discuss the arguments by which some furious madmen cease not to assail this holy ordinance of God. And first, feeling themselves pressed beyond measure by the resemblance between baptism and circumcision, they contend that there is a wide difference between the two signs, that the one has nothing in common with the other. They maintain that the things meant are different, that the covenant is altogether different, and that the persons included under the name of children are different. When they first proceed to the proof, they pretend that circumcision was a figure of mortification, not of baptism. This we willingly concede to them for it admirably supports our view in support of which the only proof we use is that baptism and circumcision are signs of mortification. Hence we conclude that the one was substituted for the other, baptism representing to us the very thing which circumcision signified to the Jews, and asserting a difference of covenant, with what barbarian audacity do they corrupt and destroy scripture, and that not in one passage only, but so as not to leave any passage safe and entire. The Jews, they depict as so carnal as to resemble brutes more than men, representing the covenant which was made with them as reaching no farther than a temporary life, and the promises which were given to them as dwindling down into present and corporeal blessings. If this dogma is received, what remains but that the Jewish nation was overloaded for a time with divine kindness, just as swine are gorged in their sty, that they might at last perish eternally? 
whenever we quote circumcision and the promises annexed to it, they answer that circumcision was a literal sign and that its promises were carnal. Section 11. Certainly, if circumcision was a literal sign, the same view must be taken of baptism, since, in the second chapter to the Colossians, the apostle makes the one to be not a whit more spiritual than the other. For he says that in Christ we, quote, are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands in putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, unquote. In explanation of his sentiment, he immediately adds that we are, quote, buried with him in baptism, unquote. What do these words mean but just that the truth and completion of baptism is the truth and completion of circumcision, since they represent one thing? For his object is to show that baptism is the same thing to Christians, that circumcision formerly was to the Jews. Now, since we have already clearly shown that the promises of both signs and the mysteries which are represented by them agree, we shall not dwell on the point longer at present. I would only remind believers to reflect without anything being said by me, whether that is to be regarded as an earthly and literal sign which has nothing heavenly or spiritual under it. Unless they should blind the simple with their smoke, we shall in passing dispose of one objection by which they cloak this most impudent falsehood. It is absolutely certain that the original promises comprehending the covenant which God made with the Israelites under the old dispensation were spiritual and had reference to eternal life, and were, of course, in like manner spiritually received by the fathers, that they might thence entertain a sure hope of immortality, and aspire to it with their whole soul. Meanwhile, we are far from denying that he testified his kindness to them by carnal and earthly blessings, though we hold that by these the hope of spiritual promises were confirmed. In this manner, when he promised eternal blessedness to his servant Abraham, he, in order to place a manifest indication of favor before his eye, added the promise of possession of the land of Canaan. In the same way, we should understand all the terrestrial promises which were given to the Jewish nation, the spiritual promise as the head to which the others bore reference, always holding the first place. Having handled the subject fully when treating of the difference between the old and the new dispensations, I now only glance at it. Section 12. Under the appellation of Children, the difference they observe is this, that the children of Abraham under the old dispensation were those who derived their origin from his seed, but that the appellation is now given to those who imitate his faith, and therefore that carnal infancy, which was engrafted into the fellowship of the covenant by circumcision, typified the spiritual children of the new covenant who are regenerated by the word of God to immortal life. In these words we indeed discover a small spark of truth, but these giddy spirits are grievously in this, that laying hold of whatever comes first to their hand, when they ought to proceed farther and compare many things together, they obstinately fasten upon one single word. Hence it cannot but happen that they are every now and then deluded, because they do not exert themselves to obtain a full knowledge of any subject. We certainly admit that the carnal seed of Abraham for a time held the place of the spiritual seed, which is engrafted into him by faith. Galatians 4, verse 28, and Romans 4, verse 12. For we are called his sons, though we have no natural relationship with him. But if they mean, as they not obscurely show, that the spiritual promise was never made to the carnal seed of Abraham, they are greatly mistaken. We must, therefore, take a better aim, one to which we are directed by the infallible guidance of Scripture. The Lord therefore promises to Abraham that he shall have a seed in whom all the nations of the earth will be blessed, and at the same time assures him that he will be a God both to him and his seed. All who in faith receive Christ as the author of the blessing are the heirs of this promise and accordingly are called the children of Abraham. Section 13 Although after the resurrection of Christ the boundaries of the kingdom began to be extended far and wide into all nations indiscriminately, so that, according to the declaration of Christ, believers were collected from all quarters to sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, Matthew 8, verse 11. Still, for many ages before, the Jews had enjoyed this great mercy. And as he had selected them, while passing by all other nations, to be for a time the depositories of his favor, he designated them as his peculiar purchased people. Exodus 19, verse 5. In attestation of this kindness, he appointed circumcision, by which symbol the Jews were taught that God watched over their safety, and they were thereby raised to the hope of eternal life. For what can ever be wanting to him whom God has once taken under his protection? Wherefore, the apostle, to prove that the Gentiles, as well as the Jews, were the children of Abraham, speaks in this way. Quote, Faith was reckoned to Abraham for righteousness. 
How is it then reckoned? When he was in circumcision or in uncircumcision? Not in circumcision, but in uncircumcision. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had yet being uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all them that believe, though they be not circumcised, that righteousness might be imputed to them also, and the father of circumcision to them who are not of the circumcision only, but who also walk in the steps of that faith of our father Abraham, which he had yet being uncircumcised. Unquote. Romans 4, verses 9-12 through 12. Do we not see that both are made equal in dignity? For to the time appointed to the divine decree, he was the father of circumcision. But when, as the apostle elsewhere writes, Ephesians 2, verse 14, the wall of partition which separated the Gentiles from the Jews was broken down, to them also access was given to the kingdom of God, and he became their father, and that without the sign of circumcision, its place being supplied by baptism. In saying expressly that Abraham was not the father of those who were of the circumcision only, his object was to repress the superciliousness of some who, laying aside all regard of godliness, plumed themselves on mere ceremonies. In like manner we may in the present day refute the vanity of those who, in baptism, seek nothing but water. Section 14 But in opposition to this is produced a passage from the epistle to the Romans in which the apostle says that those who are of the flesh are not the children of Abraham, but that those only who are the children of promise are considered as the seed. Romans 9, verse 7. For he seems to insinuate that carnal relationship to Abraham, which we think of some consequence, is nothing. But we must attend carefully to the subject which the apostle is there treating, his object being to show to the Jews that the goodness of God was not restricted to the seed of Abraham, nay, that of itself it contributes nothing, produces, in proof of the fact, the cases of Ishmael and Esau, these being rejected just as if they had been strangers, although, according to the flesh, they were the genuine offspring of Abraham, the blessing resides in Isaac and Jacob. This proves what he afterwards affirms, these, that salvation depends on the mercy which God bestows on whomsoever he pleases, but that the Jews have no ground to glory or plume themselves on the name of the covenant unless they keep the law of the covenant, that is, obey the word. On the other hand, after casting down their vain confidence in their origin, because he was aware that the covenant which had been made with the posterity of Abraham could not properly prove fruitless, he declares that due honor should still be paid to carnal relationship to Abraham, in consequence of which the Jews were the primary and native heirs of the gospel, unless insofar as they were, for their ingratitude, rejected as unworthy, and yet rejected so as not to leave their nation utterly destitute of the heavenly blessing. For this reason, though they were contumacious breakers of the covenant, he styles them holy. Such respect does he pay to the holy generation which God had honored with his sacred covenant, while we, in comparison of them, are termed posthumous, our abortive children of Abraham, and that not by nature, but by adoption, just as if a twig were broken from its own tree and engrafted on another stock. Therefore, that they might not be defrauded of their privilege, it was necessary that the gospel should first be preached to them. For they are, as it were, the firstborn in the family of God. The honor due on this account must therefore be paid them until they have rejected the offer and by their ingratitude caused it to be transferred to the Gentiles. Nor, however great the contumacy with which they persist in warring against the gospel, are we, therefore, to despise them. We must consider that in respect to the promise, the blessing of God still resides among them, and, as the Apostle testifies, will never entirely depart from them, saying that, quote, the gifts and calling of God are without repentance, unquote. Romans 11, verse 29. Section 15. Such is the value of the promise given to the posterity of Abraham, such the balance in which it is to be weighed. Hence, though we have no doubt that in distinguishing the children of God from bastards and foreigners, that the election of God reigns freely, we at the same time perceive that he was pleased specially to embrace the seed of Abraham with his mercy, and, for the better attestation of it, to seal it by circumcision. The case of the Christian church is entirely of the same description, for as Paul there declares that the Jews are sanctified by their parents, so he elsewhere says that the children of Christians derive sanctification from their parents. Hence it is inferred that those who are chargeable with impurity are justly separated from others. Now, who can have any doubt as to the falsehood of their subsequent averment? These, that the infants who were formerly circumcised only typified the spiritual infancy which is produced by the regeneration of the word of God. 
When the apostle says that, quote, Jesus Christ was a minister of the circumcision for the truth of God to confirm the promises made unto the fathers, unquote, Romans 15, verse 8, he does not philosophize subtly as if he had said, since the covenant made with Abraham has respect unto his seed, Christ, in order to perform discharge the promise made by the Father, came for the salvation of the Jewish nation. Do you see how he considers that, after the resurrection of Christ, the promise is to be fulfilled to the seed of Abraham, not allegorically, but literally, as the words express? To the same effect is the declaration of Peter to the Jews. Quote, the promise is unto you and to your children, unquote. Acts 2, verse 39. And in the next chapter he calls them the children of the covenant, that is, heirs. Not widely different from this is the other passage of the Apostle, above quoted, in which he regards and describes circumcision performed on infants as an attestation to the communion which they have with Christ. And indeed, if we listen to the absurdities of those men, what will become of the promise by which the Lord, in the second commandment of his law, engages to be gracious to the seed of his servants for a thousand generations? Shall we here have recourse to allegory? This were the merest quibble. Shall we say that it has been abrogated? In this way we should do away with the law which Christ came not to destroy, but to fulfill, inasmuch as it turns to our everlasting good. Therefore let it be without controversy that God is so good and liberal to his people, that he is pleased as a mark of his favor to extend their privileges to the children born to them. Section 16. The distinctions which these men attempt to draw between baptism and circumcision are not only ridiculous and void of all semblance of reason, but at variance with each other. For when they affirm that baptism refers to the first day of spiritual contest and circumcision to the eighth day, mortification being already accomplished, they immediately forget the distinction and change their song, representing circumcision as typifying the mortification of the flesh, and baptism as a burial which is given to none but those who are already dead. What are these giddy contradictions but frenzied dreams? According to the former view, baptism ought to precede circumcision. According to the latter, it should come after it. It is not the first time we have seen the minds of men wander to and fro when they substitute their dreams for the infallible word of God. We hold, therefore, that their former distinction is a mere imagination. Were we disposed to make an allegory of the eighth day, theirs would not be the proper mode of it. It were much better with the early Christians to refer the number eight to the resurrection, which took place on the eighth day, and on which we know that newness of life depends are to the whole course of the present life during which mortification ought to be in progress, only terminating when life itself terminates, although it would seem that God intended to provide for the tenderness of infancy by deferring circumcision to the eighth day, as the wound would have been more dangerous if inflicted immediately after birth. How much more rational is the declaration of Scripture, that we, when already dead, are buried by baptism, Romans 6, verse 4, since it distinctly states that we are buried unto death, that we may thoroughly die and thenceforth aim at that mortification. Equally ingenious is their cavil, that women should not be baptized if baptism is to be made conformable to circumcision. For if it is most certain that the sanctification of the seed of Israel was attested by the sign of circumcision, it cannot be doubted that it was appointed alike for the sanctification of males and females. But though the rite could only be performed on males, yet the females were, through them, partners and associates in circumcision. Wherefore, disregarding all such quibbling distinctions, let us fix on the very complete resemblance between baptism and circumcision, as seen in the internal office, the promise, the use, and the effect. Section 17. They seem to think they produce their strongest reason for denying baptism to children when they allege that they are as yet unfit from knowledge to understand the mystery which is there sealed, these spiritual regeneration, which is not applicable to earliest infancy. Hence they infer that children are only to be regarded as sons of Adam until they have attained an age fit for the reception of the second birth. But all this is directly opposed to the truth of God. For if they are to be accounted sons of Adam, they are left in death, since in Adam we can do nothing but die. On the contrary, Christ bids them to be brought to him. Why so? Because he is life. Therefore, that he may quicken them, he makes them partners with himself, whereas these men would drive them away from Christ and judge them to death. For if they pretend that infants do not perish when they are accounted the sons of Adam, the error is more than sufficiently confuted by the testimony of Scripture. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 22. For seeing it declares that in Adam all die, 
it follows that no hope of life remains unless in Christ. Therefore, that we may become heirs of life, we must communicate with him. Again, seeing it is elsewhere written that we are all by nature the children of wrath, Ephesians 2, verse 3, and conceived in sin, Psalm 51, verse 5, of which condemnation is the inseparable attendant, we must part with our own nature before we have any access to the kingdom of God. And what can be clearer than the expression, quote, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, end quote, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 50. Therefore, let everything that is our own be abolished. This cannot be without regeneration and then we shall perceive this possession of the kingdom. And fine, if Christ speaks truly when he declares that he is life, we must necessarily be engrafted into him by whom we are delivered from the bodies of death. But how, they ask, are infants regenerated when not possessing a knowledge of either good or evil? We answer that the work of God, though beyond the reach of our capacity, is not therefore null. Moreover, infants who are to be saved, and that some are saved at this age is certain, must, without question, be previously regenerated by the Lord. For if they bring in a corruption with them from their mother's womb, they must be purified before they can be admitted into the kingdom of God, into which shall not enter anything that defileth. Revelation 21, verse 27. If they are born sinners, as David and Paul affirm, they must either remain unaccepted and hated by God, or be justified. And why do we ask more when the judge himself publicly declares that, quote, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God, unquote, John 3, verse 3. But to silence this class of objectors, God gave, in the case of John the Baptist, whom he sanctified from his mother's womb, Luke 1, verse 15, a proof of what he might do in others. They gain nothing by the quibble to which they here resort, these, that this was only once done, and therefore it does not forthwith follow that the Lord always acts thus with infants. That is not the mode in which we reason. Our only object is to show that they unjustly and malignantly confine the power of God within limits, within which it cannot be confined, as little weight is due to another subterfuge. They allege that, by the usual phraseology of Scripture, quote, from the womb, unquote, has the same meaning as, quote, from childhood, unquote. But it is easy to see that the angel had a different meaning when he announced to Zacharias that the child not yet born would be filled with the Holy Spirit. Instead of attempting to give a law to God, let us hold that he sanctifies whom he pleases in the way in which he sanctified John, seeing that his power is not impaired. Section 18. And indeed Christ was sanctified from earliest infancy that he might sanctify his elect in himself at any age without distinction. Whereas he, in order to wipe away the guilt of disobedience which had been committed in our flesh, assumed that very flesh that in it he might on our account and in our stead perform a perfect obedience, so he was conceived by the Holy Spirit. That completely pervaded with his holiness in his flesh which he had assumed, he might transfuse it into us. If in Christ we have a perfect pattern of all the graces which God bestows on all his children, in this instance we have a proof that the age of infancy is not incapable of receiving sanctification. This, at least, we set down as incontrovertible, that none of the elect is called away from the present life without being previously sanctified and regenerated by the Spirit of God. As to their objection that in Scripture the Spirit acknowledges no sanctification save that from incorruptible seed, that is, the Word of God, they erroneously interpret Peter's words in which he comprehends only believers who had been taught by the preaching of the Gospel. 1 Peter 1, verse 23. We confess, indeed, that the word of the Lord is the only seed of spiritual regeneration. But we deny the inference that, therefore, the power of God cannot regenerate infants. This is as possible and easy for him as it is wondrous and incomprehensible to us. It were dangerous to deny that the Lord is able to furnish them with the knowledge of himself in any way he pleases. Section 19. But faith, they say, cometh by hearing, the use of which infants have not yet obtained, nor can they be fit to know God, being, as Moses declares, without the knowledge of good and evil. Deuteronomy 1, verse 39. But they observe not that where the apostle makes hearing the beginning of faith, he is only describing the usual economy and dispensation which the Lord is wont to employ in calling his people, and not laying down an invariable rule for which no other method can be substituted. Many he certainly has called and endued with a true knowledge of himself by internal means, by the illumination of the Spirit, without the intervention of preaching. But since they deem it very absurd to attribute any knowledge of God to infants whom Moses makes void of the knowledge of good and evil, let them tell me where the danger lies that they are said now to receive some part of that grace of which they are to have the full measure shortly after. 
for if fullness of life consists in the perfect knowledge of God, since some of those whom death hurries away in the first moments of infancy pass into life eternal, they are certainly admitted to behold the immediate presence of God. Those, therefore, whom the Lord is to illumine with the full brightness of his light, why may he not, if he so pleases, irradiate at present with some small beam, especially if he does not remove their ignorance before he delivers them from the prison of the flesh? I would not rashly affirm that they are endued with the same faith which we experience in ourselves, or have any knowledge at all resembling faith. This I would rather leave undecided. But I would somewhat curb the stolid arrogance of those men who, as with inflated cheeks, affirm or deny whatever suits them. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more at great discounts, are on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096 780-468-1096 or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue Edmonton AB Canada T6L3T5 If you do not have a web connection please request a free printed catalog. If you do have a web connection and would like to be added to our email list please send an email to Add at swrb.com or swrb at swrb.com with the word add in the subject line. SWRB's email list is a double opt-in list, so once you've sent us your email address, you will be asked by email to confirm that you want to join our list using the email address you have supplied. Your email information will be kept confidential, and you can easily remove yourself from our email list by simply emailing us at swrb at swrb.com with the word remove in the subject line. Once you are on our email list, you will be alerted to all the new free Reformation resources, free MP3s, free electronic books and text, etc. SWRB makes available on the web, as well as at times to our best discounts and super specials. We also encourage you to reproduce this audio resource and to pass it on to your friends, but we only authorize this as long as the full content of the message, including the header and trailer, is not altered in any way and as long as the audio file or cassette is given away for free. Thank you again for listening to this SWRB reading, and remember that Isaiah 26 3 states, Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. And 2 Corinthians 13.11 concludes, Finally, brethren, farewell. Be perfect, be of good comfort, be of one mind, live in peace, and the God of love and peace shall be with you.